A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored by Eyewear Unlimited, a glasses store in Lakewood, New Jersey, on River Avenue. A great store, great glasses, great prices, great service. So go pick up your new pair of glasses at Eyewear Unlimited in Lakewood. Um, I want to um, mention, before we get to today's topic, just uh, this week in the Mishpacha magazine, in case you didn't notice it, I had a article um, where I interviewed Reb David Mandelbaum a great, great um, Talmud Chacham, first and foremost, in B'nai Brak. Uh, and he's someone who has dedicated his life to uh, um, bringing the Torah works and also their biographies and history of pre-war uh, Polish Torah scholars to light. Um, and he focuses on Yeshivas Chachmi Oblin, or Meir Shapiro, also a little bit of Warsaw, or Benachem Zemba, and others. And he's... Uh, right now, publishing a book on the Kajlik Averov, Rabbi Tzvi Frommer, um, who is the Rosh Hashiva in Yeshiva's Chachme Lublin. So I spoke to him about that book and about the Kajlik and about his other projects. And it's a very interesting article published this past week in the Mishpacha magazine. I believe it's available on their website as well. So you may want to check that out. And of course, when the book comes out, um, even though it's in Hebrew, um, but it should be a very interesting read. I read it, I enjoyed it very much. Uh, the Jewish date today is Chaf Sivan. Um, so that's a, a sp- tw- the 20th day of Sivan. It's a special day in Jewish history, uh, commemorating the 1648-1649 Chmelnitsky uh, massacres in Ukraine and Poland. In Jewish history, it's referred to as Tach v'tat, the years in the Hebrew calendar. I spoke about it on an early episode a couple of years ago um, about Tach v'tat, the massacre of the Jewish community of Nemerov in Ukraine was chosen, that that day was chosen as the day of memory, of prayer, of fasting. It was a Ukrainian uh, revolt against the Polish aristocracy with the Jews caught in the middle and many were slaughtered by uh, Ukrainians, so it's a bit ironic in, of course, today's environment to commemorate it, 
but that's a special day in Jewish history. I also want to announce a launch of an upcoming series. We're going to start either next week or in two weeks, maybe, um, leading up to the three weeks and Tish above. Uh, we're going to have a series about, I think, six or seven parts uh, about Jews saving Jews during the Holocaust. Very, very important and fascinating subject. I'm going to examine it from, you know, focus on different episodes, different profiles, different stories of individuals or groups who went ahead and uh, risked their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust. The focus is on Jews under Nazi occupation saving other Jews under Nazi occupation, not ones from the outside um, saving Jews on the inside, and also not non-Jews, which is a different story. It's also an important story. This is a unique uh, uh, and, and story that is not so much focused on, so I want to do an entire series on it. And the reason that I'm announcing it now is because you can sponsor episodes. Uh, I can give you details of the different topics and stories and profiles that we're doing and be in touch with me, um, yehudatyehudigaber.com, for sponsorship opportunities um, in this series. Of course, any other topics and episodes and sponsorships as well, you can be in touch with me, but specifically about this upcoming series um, you can uh, have the opportunity to sponsor one of these stories, which will be very popular, very interesting, and very meaningful. I also want to remind everyone about my upcoming trip to the United States, um, the last week of July, uh, approximately July 26th or so. I don't, didn't close on an exact date, and I'm going to be there until the next week, August 2nd or so. Uh, also didn't uh, close exactly. Um, be there in the New York area, available for lectures, uh, for tours. There's going to be a public cemetery tour, probably in the Mount Judah Cemetery in Queens, to Kivrit Sadikim. that's to be confirmed. We don't have an exact date yet, but it's something that um, I'm sure our listeners in Jewish History Soundbites will be very interested in joining, so stay tuned for those details as well. It should be a very nice visit, and you can be in touch with me about that as well. Uh, at the same email address, Yehuda at yehudagever.com. So those are the basic announcements and tidbits. Um, and I think we're ready to move on to today's topic, which is hard to believe that we that I haven't covered it yet in Jewish History Soundbites, such an important figure, the great Kovnerov, Rabbi Tzikolchanan Specter, one of the greatest leaders of Russian Jewry of the 19th century, Really, really someone who made such an impact in his leadership, in his psak, in his everything about him, this charismatic individual, very, very universally acclaimed, uh, beloved, respected by all factions of the Jewish community, both in Russia and worldwide. He was in Kovna, which is technically Lithuania, but of course during the 19th century, this is after the partitions of Poland, so the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth ceased to exist, Lithuania is in Russia. It's before there's independent Lithuania of post-World War I. So although he's associated with the Lithuanian part of the Jewish community, but it's Russian Jewry that he comes to be a leader of. So we're going to talk a little bit about him. I want to start with a few anecdotes to put things in context about who Rabitz Galchanan Specter was, the Kovnerov was, um, and... Uh, and and just you know, it's just 
a few a few random uh, stories and anecdotes that can you know give us a little bit of a sense of who we're talking about. I was Rebel Wine, may he live and be well. Um, he introduced me to Rebizikhan many many years ago. Obviously, I had heard of him before that and read about him before that, but. Rabbi Wine uh, liked to likes to tell uh, stories about Rabbi Tzachanan, and um, he told me uh, several, two of which stick out. Uh, one of them was that someone once approached Rabbi Tzachanan Spectre. Now we're heading into the the the, the summer months, um, June, July, August. So there was someone who approached Rabbi Tzachanan and asked him, you know, he's the Rabbi of Kovna, which is a very large Jewish community, and therefore he got a very respectable salary. In his early rabbinic career years, he got very very poorly paid. He lived in abject poverty, um, and was only, you know, much much later when he got hired to a much more prestigious rabbinic position of Kovna that he got a very respectable uh, salary. So someone asked him in his later years, when he was in Kovna, how come he deserved such a large salary? What does he do already? So Rizukhanan responded, he said, you know, during the summer it's very hot and I have to wear my rabbinical jacket, my, my frack, which is a very heavy, uh, hot jacket. And while everyone else gets to relax in the heat, um, I have to continue wearing my rabbinic jacket. So for that I deserve a nice salary, which is both a very cute response, very humorous, and also has layers of meaning there. And Rebetzikochana was trying to convey a message that he doesn't, he can't take a vacation. He can't take off his rabbinical jacket. He shoulders the responsibilities of the Jewish people all the time, anytime he's always available. And that was a very powerful message that he said in that fashion. Another story um, that Rabbi Wine related was a personal story with him um, that, uh, that when he was the head of the OU, um, in the 1960s, late 60s, or early 70s, I don't remember. So the um, the OU at that time, during that time, gave a hechsher for Pesach, a kosher Pesach certification for peanut oil made by the Rokeach Food Company, and um, and the peanut oil, which is is you know some somewhat related to kidneys. So there was members of the religious lobby who approached him. And told him that that it, that it should be removed. They should, oh, you should not certify peanut oil because it's it's not kosher for Pesach. It's 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 kidneys. So he explained to them that Israel Rokeach, who started the, the Rokeach Food Company in the Lower East Side, he had who's he was a Jew from Kovna, and he had immigrated from Kovna, and his food company had started in Kovna, and this peanut oil that he produced had already been produced. In Kavna, and the Kavna Rabbi Bitzgochan Inspector had given it its kosher certification. He said, in, "As long as I'm in the OU, I don't have the chutzpah to take off a a hechsher that Rabbi Bitzgochan, the Kavna Rav himself, gave." Uh, that was his response to them. So, needless to say, um, there is no uh, kosher certified for Pesach uh, peanut oil of the OU today, but that's because. We've all become much more religious than Rabbi Tzikochan Inspector, uh, but uh, enough said. So that's uh, just another story. So we go to his um, his kever in Kovna uh, in Lithuania today. It's it's been moved. The old cemetery was destroyed, and his and his son Ratzir Shrabinovich, his successor and son, they their kever was 
the only one transferred from the old cemetery when it was destroyed to the new cemetery, which is at the in Aleksot, in the in, in a suburb of of Kovna. So Rebetzikachanan's cover is one of the popular visits that we do. Um, and um, one trip, I was there. I was uh, relating many stories. Uh, in front of his cover for about 15 minutes, and then I allowed the, allowed the group to daven a little bit. So an, an innocent and rather ignorant uh, kid from Lakewood approaches me and says, in all innocence, um, he says to me, you know, from the stories you said, it sounds like he was a very hush of a person, so why is YU named for him? So, <laughs> so I... Uh, you know, I, I told him, I guess, why he was pretty chashiv too, you know, and this is before the courts uh, just, uh, you know, paskined last week that it's not a religious institution, but that's for more of the contemporary news people to deal with, not for me. I deal only with the history. So I said, you know, maybe he was a, a very chashiv a place. Uh, you know, sometimes, somehow we have to reconcile this, this, uh, this great uh, uh, conflict and contradiction. So beyond the humorous part of the story, so it, it, it also shows how, you know, um, how, um, first of all, little we know um, about things from our past, but also how uh, Ritz, uh, Rubitzik Elchorin uh, Theological Seminary, was named by Kovna Jews who lived in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and how they named it for him a year after he had passed away when the yeshiva was relatively new, and they, uh, they, they decided to name it after him. By the way, at the same exact time, in his own city, in the suburb of Kavna called Slabatka, there was a split, a big dispute, a big controversy of the in the Musser movement, the anti-Musser and pro-Musser factions in Slabatka, which spread to, around Lithuania. And in that Slabatka split, um, so Rebetzvi Hirsch Rabinovich, Rebetzvi son and successor as the Rav of Kovna, he supported the non-Musser faction, and the non-Musser yeshiva in Slabatka was named um, Knesset uh, Yitzchak in, in his name, named, named after Rebetzvi Um So there's another yeshiva, so you have Rebetzvi uh Theological Seminary, Ritz, named after him in New York, and then you have the, eventually was the Kamnet Yeshiva of Rabarch Berlebevich, named for him in Slabatka, And there was actually an orphanage in Kovna, named for him and several other institutions as well. In, interestingly enough, the Nachlat Yitzchak neighborhood in Tel Aviv, which was founded in 1923 by immigrants from Kovna, and of course the famous cemetery in that neighborhood of the same name, um, is named for Yitzchak Inspector as well. Um, and in, incidentally, in the Nachat Yitzchak Cemetery, there's some very moving monuments and memorials to Lithuanian Jewry, and there's many other interesting landmarks in Kivrit Sadikim there. I would love to do more tours there. Um, most tourists, uh, when they want walking tours of Kivrit Sadikim in Israel, it's in Harazesim, Har sometimes we get as far as Bnei Brak, but the Nachat Yitzchak Cemetery in Tel Aviv is a treasure trove, and um, that should be on the tour list for any of you who are interested in doing those walking tours as well. Um, another story, if I recall correctly, this was actually a story that was regularly related by Rav Shach. Um, the Ritzakal Khanan was known as a great matir igunais, someone who uh, assisted women who had been either abandoned by their husbands or who went missing. 
Both took place in the Russia of of the 19th century, especially towards the end of the 19th century with the onset of the Great Immigration. There were unfortunately many, many instances of abandoned wives when men would go ahead of their families and immigrate, and ostensibly they were going to send for their wives and children a couple years later when many just disappeared. And it's a very big story, which is, is worth an episode on its own. But Rabbi Zavachanun is very involved in assisting these agunas and helping them be able to remarry. So there's this story with an unfortunate woman who Rabbi Zavachanun was unable to find any leniency to be able to allow her to remarry. And he had, you know, done done been successful with, I think, well over a hundred, or maybe even a couple of hundred other women. And so she started to cry. And you have to understand, a woman who couldn't remarry in the 19th century Jewish community of Russia was almost like a death sentence. Because how is she going to support her family? How is she going to live on her own? She has orphans at home. It's, uh, they might, it's likely that they might starve to death. It was a very, very tragic situation for someone to be in that, uh, caught in that, uh, that, uh, that situation. So she starts to cry, and he feels her pain. He's a very compassionate individual, and he feels her pain. So he says, you know what? Let me try again. Let me look through this forum again, and let me think again about the sugya, and let me find you a way out. And he did. He spent another few hours on it, and he was able to come up with a lumdus and a heter, and he found her a way out. So Rav Shach used to point out that in this story we have a combination of both the genius, the great Torah scholarliness of Rabbi Zikolchanan, and combined with his great heart, his great compassion uh, for another Jew and their feelings. He said, because if you're just a Jew with a good heart, then uh, then that heart, you know, you feel bad for the woman, but you have to find a legitimate heter. Uh, and it has to be based on something real, in halacha. So a good heart is not going to be enough. If you're just a genius, and, and genius alone is not going to do it, because initially he was not able to find leniency with all of his genius. It was a combination of his great compassion that compelled him to search through it again, combined with his genius of his being able to find that heter the second time because he was such a brilliant Talmud Chacham, and that was what, how he was able to save this woman. So um, so that's Rabbi Zikachanan. Rabbi Zikachanan is the combination of the greatest Talmud Chacham out there and the greatest leader and compassionate individual who carries the Jewish people on his shoulders. So... He's a you know a, a great Torah scholar, a Pesach and Halacha, including several published volumes of his response on many different topics, and perhaps most of all this universal acclaim as a strong and popular leader. He was a great unifier who earned respect from all quarters of the increasingly divided Jewish world in Russia of his day, including a good working relationship with the cultural and financial elite, and not very religious, to say the least, the Jewish community in St. Petersburg, including Avram Harkavi and especially Baron Hartz Ginsburg, um, who he had a very good working relationship with, a very close relationship with. The two would discuss many uh, Jewish community issues, and Baron Ginsburg, of course, was the most powerful Jew in Russia at the time, and many others. The Rothschilds in Western Europe, he had a contact with. He was good with everyone. Um, he grew up in the town of Rush, ironically, uh, um, and uh, his father was the rub of the town. It was his primary teacher. He got married at the age of 13, which wasn't all that rare then, uh, surprisingly. He was born in in, um, in 18, um, 
18, I wrote it down here somewhere. Um, so 1817, 1817. And um, he, um, and he, 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 so he gets married at, at the age of 13. So it's about 1830. His wife was from Volkovisk. So he lived there for a few years and he studied under its rabbi, Rabbi Yamin Diskin. And at that time, he becomes close friends with the rabbi's son, Rabbi Yeshua Leib Diskin. And he remains close friends with him throughout their lives. He was also a student of Rabbi Leo Shik. He later on receives his rabbinical ordination from Rabbi Yamin Diskin and Rabbi Zakai Zakhaver. And then he goes on to commence his rabbinic career at the age of 20. So Rebizikachanan already becomes the rabbi of a town at the age of 20. In very small towns uh, that paid him very poorly, Zablin and Barja and Neshviz, and then he gets a little bit of an upgrade. He becomes the rabbi in Novarduk. And then in 1864, he becomes appointed the rabbi of Kovna, which is one of the largest Jewish communities in the area, most one of the more prestigious ones. And he remains there until his passing 32 years later. So the last 32 years of his life, he remains stable as the Kovner of. And the city, the Jewish community of the city, rose in prominence as a result and outshines Vilna and Minsk for primacy in the Lithuanian Torah world, probably because of Rebetzal Kochan and Specter alone. Um, he has this close association with the Jewish leadership in St. Petersburg, like I mentioned, and with the Russian government officials, both local in the Kovna area and in St. Petersburg. And he uses those relationships to um, you know, act as a leader of, his, of, the, of the Jewish community of, of the Russian Empire and the Pale of Settlement, um, all different decrees and and the you know economic limitations, and eventually after 1881, the pogroms um, and the May laws. Um, he's at the forefront and center of everything at rabbinical conferences, at changes that the Russian government wants to implement into Jewish society. He's at the center of everything, and he works with many other Torah leaders of his day as well. So he attends a few of these rabbinical conferences. Um, in St. Petersburg himself, personally. He goes there, at least two that I know of. Um, he also is associated with the Chovavei Tzion movement, the Lovers of Zion movement, which was the Russian, uh, uh, pre predated Zionism, but in the first Aliyah, um, the, the Lovers of Zion movement want to settle the land and establish agricultural, agricultural colonies. He sent his blessings to the Katowice Conference in 1884 of the Chovavei And he was not able to... Many people um, are either surprised when they hear this or outright deny that he was supportive of it because there's not much of a record. And the reason is because for most of the years in Russia... At least while Rabbi Tzadokhan was alive, the Chayvetzian movement was illegal. The Tsar did not allow it to operate legally, which the Tsar's government, their attitude to most of these independent organizations was. It was a very autocratic regime, and therefore he was not able to express his support openly. In the last years of his life, it became legal, and he did express more public and open support for the organization. The irony of his support of Chayyav was that his secretary, his legendary secretary, Yaakov Lifshitz, was a strong opponent of Chayyav of Zionism, of, of pretty much everything under the sun. But that's a different story um, that I covered in one of the first episodes of Jewish History Soundbites a couple of years ago about Yaakov Lifshitz. 
this idea that his secretary would be of a different uh, view of things than than uh, than the rabbi he's ostensibly serving would foreshadow a trend in which the secretary or a family member or a grandchild of a great person retains much control over the office and court of uh, of the great person and it's a trend which uh, continues until this very day uh, the the in addition to the Chayvavetzian, so Rabbi Zagachan was also behind the initiative to establish the Kovna Kail, and that was something he did together with Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. Um, the Kovna Kail, the Prushim Kail of Kovna, which Rabbi Yisrael Salanter and Rabbi Zagachan envisioned as a place that would uh, bring back the primacy of, of young married Torah scholars. It pretty much is the first um, Kolel. Of in in the modern sense of a group of young married Torah scholars uh, studying Torah, many of them training to become rabbis, many of them just studying Torah for its on its own merits to become you know future Torah leaders of the Jewish people, and um, and uh, being paid a stipend. So this kind of is like a pioneering venture in the kollel system that we know of today. The Kovna Kail, which Rabbi Tzikochanan and Rabbi Yisrael Salanter and the Alter Slabatka and a lot of other people were involved also. It's a definitely an episode on its own right. Uh, they established in Kovna in the late 1870s. Um, that's the Kovna Kail. And um, they were scattered in different, uh, various different uh, Bate Medrash and Kovna and there wasn't a formal um, um, a curriculum of study. Everyone kind of studied their own thing, but it still was a formal institution which was supported. Rabbi Sosalan to try to pull it towards a more musr oriented uh, uh, um, uh, system of, 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 uh, of uh, acceptance uh, of membership into the call. Uh, Rabbi Tzikul was more of the you know the figurehead on top, um, and but he was definitely involved in that initiative as well. He, Rabbi Zagachan was involved in the Valajan Yeshiva, in the Mir Yeshiva. He was an arbiter of disputes in many places. In Valajan, in 1857, when he was still a young rabbi in Navardak. So this is already surprising. He's not yet the great governor of. He is not even a student of the Valajan Yeshiva. But when there's a dispute between the Beis Halevi and the Nitziv about who's running the Yeshiva and who's in charge and how should the Valajan Yeshiva be run, so... There's a committee of four rabbis who are brought in to resolve this dispute, and one of them is this young, uh, up-and-coming superstar from the Vardik named Rabbi Zikachan Inspector. So that was interesting that he was brought in. Um, he was brought into the Mir twice for internal disputes into the Mir Yeshiva um, for both leadership issues between the Eisenstadt family, who were the rabbis of the town, and the Tik Tik uh, uh, Tiktinsky family, who were the Rashi Yeshiva, and the ones who, who, who were the money behind the yeshiva. So there was, there was leadership issues there that Rabbi Tzikachanan uh, was called in to, uh, um, you, know, um, you know, bring, resolve. He also was involved in the fundraising issues with the Pushkas, the Pushka Wars, uh, the, com- the competition between the Valajan, the Mir Yeshivas, on one hand, uh, with the old Yishuv. The old Yishuv had their Pushkas of Rameir Balhanes collecting in Jewish homes throughout the Pale of Settlement. And now the Mir Yeshiva was having having their pushkas out, and they brought them to Adin Taira by the uh, the Rebbe Khanan about who's allowed to put pushkas, and we don't you know, turf wars about who's allowed to fundraise where. Uh, Rebbe Khanan is involved during the closing stages of the Velazhny Yeshiva, and the Nitziv turns to him for assistance to try to keep it open. Even 
Maskilic writers and Maskilic leaders uh, respected Rebetzikel Khanan, and he showed a certain amount of tolerance for those elements of the community as well. He was somewhat of a moderate in general in both his mode of leadership and his psak in halacha. This endeared him to both the masses of Russian Jewry as well as to the general changing atmosphere of Russian Jewry during the volatile 19th century. Some of his famous psukim that he uh, that he involved himself in, that people turned to him to to uh, to you know give a decisive psak was one was about the korfu, the kashras of the korfu esregim, which in Russia people imported esregim from Italy, from Corfu, in, in in Greece, and from to a lesser extent from Morocco and other places. Um, and here, korfu esregim became a big issue, especially since there are now new Israelim arriving from the land of Israel, and members of the Chayavetzian movement wanted uh, p- that people should purchase uh, Israelim from there. David Karliner was very involved with that as well, and other Paiskim. And um, Rebetzal Khanan issued a very interesting psaac. People wanted to say that the Korfu Israelim were not kosher, and he, he goes into the whole kashras issue, uh, and then he brings up another point. He says, I wasn't asked about this, uh, but the fact that the Esrig sellers of, uh, from Corfu are jacking up the prices because they know us in Russia uh, need to buy, purchase their Esregim, that's a reason not to purchase Corfu Esregim, even if they are kosher, because uh, price gouging is, is, not, uh, is not right. The people in Jews in Russia are poor, and, um, and we shouldn't uh, purchase the Esregim if, if the price is too expensive. Um, so... That's one 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 psak he gave. Another one was during a year of famine, he allowed the eating of kidneys um, on Pesach. So in an era where we try to add at least five to ten chumras a year on Pesach, so it's worth noting that he felt that there are instances where we have to actually be more lenient on Pesach and allow kidneys uh, under those circumstances. I mentioned on the uh, when I did episodes on Shemitah, um, in the beginning of this year, so he was involved with the original Heter Mechira, um, with Rav Shmuel Zanvil Kletfish of Varsha, and Rav Yeshua Kutna, and, and Rav Shmuel Molhever, and, uh, and, uh, and, and other Rabbanim, um, with a lot of reservations. He, 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 was, he was very reserved about it. He was very, you know, it was not an unequivocal Heter, and he wanted it to be a one-time thing. He wasn't sure, you know, how, where, where it was going to go with this, but he is definitely the one who originally formulated the Heter Mechira. Now, during the pogroms and the Great Immigration, uh, during his later years, he got very involved as well. In fact, I saw a letter of his that uh, during the Great Immigration, many were immigrating to the United States, and he discusses in this letter the potential of perhaps having the land of Israel as the place of immigration instead of the United States, which might be better for the spiritual uh, future of the Jewish people, uh, as opposed to what was beginning to happen in the United States with, um, with um, you know, uh, stories of, of uh, you know, diminishing Jewish traditional observance among the immigrant communities in New York and other places. Um, so, he, But he acknowledges the trend of immigration. Understand, in other words, he understands the need to, uh, to immigrate, to get out of Russia, even though officially he did share similar positions with the St. Petersburg secular Jewish leadership, which was against immigration because they believed that the future of the Jewish people was in Russia and to try to get emancipation and to try to get acceptance. But, uh, uh, you know, and, and it is normally understood that the... Uh, 
that the uh, rabbinical leadership was completely anti-immigration because of uh, of the challenges of maintaining traditional Jewish observance in the United States. Um, Rabbi Tzikachanan is not unequivocal, and he acknowledges the hardships of staying in Russia. And that's what made him such a great leader, is he understood the people, he understood the needs, and uh, and he deals with it in that letter. Um, it's very, very interesting. And he during this time, um, he's dealing with a lot of the internal Russian, Jewish, and non-Jewish leadership, and beyond Russia. He's in touch with some of the greatest rabbis of Western Europe, regularly in touch with them. He corresponds with them regularly. Reb Shamshin, Reb Fall, Hirsch in Frankfurt, Reb Israel Hildesheimer in Berlin, Reb Tzadik Khan of Paris, Reb Nathan Adler in London, and many others across the whole Europe. They all look to Reb Khanan as this leader, Reb Khanan writes to Reb Shanshinval Hirsch regarding his forum. He writes an approbation to Reb, Reb, Reb Shanshinval Hirsch, I think to the Chayr, if I'm not mistaken, maybe it was another safer of his. They, he's he's very actively involved with the Jewish communities of Western Europe. Also, Reb Khanan was involved in assisting Jewish soldiers in the Tsar's army. Again, these are not the elite of Jewish society obtaining kosher food for them and caring for them. He was very, very beloved. Um, lots of things fell apart following his passing because Russian Jewry lacked this great unifying force, which everyone on all sides respected. Uh, and after his passing, that simply did not exist in Russian Jewry anymore. And perhaps it has not existed in the Jewish world since then. Someone so universally respected, with such a strong leadership position, with so much charisma and such a great uh, Talmud Chacham, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to find another example of that in recent Jewish history. Just for example, the Musser dispute, which I mentioned, 1897 it breaks out, it breaks out right after Nebitsa Kachanan passed away in his town, in Slabatka Kavna. So, um, it, you know, it's likely that it, it either would not have broken out or would have ended differently had he still been alive, had this figure had still been alive, but it's much more than that as well. Um, there are several books about him. Rabbi Yaakov uh, Lifshitz, his secretary, who I mentioned, who we had an episode about, wrote a book about him. Aaron Saraski today, in today's day and age, did a, a short biography based on Yaakov Lifshitz's work. There's an essay profile on him in one of the Leo Jung's uh, collections of biographies of great people. There are collections of his letters, and there's more. So there is material out there, but I think we need a good and comprehensive biography on his and his era on Russian Jewry of the 19th century in English or even in Hebrew, as long as it gets out there. I think it's really needed and would be fascinating to read. Just end off with one more point, which I find funny is that he passed away on the 21st day of Adar, Chaf Aleph Adar. And Litvaks, of course, so no one goes to his kever on his yard site in Kovna, no one's there. Uh, 21 Chaf Aleph Adar is also the yard site of the Rebbe of Meilach, the Naimali Melech of Lezhensk, where thousands, maybe tens of thousands go. So it's just, you know, brings out the difference um, between how how uh, Lithuanian Torah leaders are are, uh, are treated on their yard sites. Happens to be that I once had the privilege of going to both on their yard site on the same day with a group. We uh, started the day in in Kovna, 
and then we flew, uh, that's it was Chafal of Adar. We were actually at Rebitzik Al-Khanan's uh, kever on Chafal of Adar. We were the only ones there that day. It was probably the first time he had people on at his kever on his yard site in years. And then that day we flew down from Vilna to Warsaw and then drove to Lezhensk. And we made it just at the end of Chafal of Adar. But it's Galicia already, so you can come an hour or two after Shkia. And it's still uh, uh, Chafal of Adar. And we made it to Lezhensk as well. So this is uh, uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Specter. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, including the upcoming trip to the United States, um, and Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com. And um, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoy.